Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm speaking to you from New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you, as I always uh, joke, live from Macquarie, but we're actually recording this at night, so I'm at home and not at Macquarie University. I am here today with uh, two amazing uh, researchers, writers, scholars, uh, who have written a fantastic book on women's football or women's soccer here in Australia. The authors of the book are Dr. Fiona Crawford, who's a writer, editor, researcher, whose work engages with social, environmental, and sports issues. And she writes for a range of publications, including 442, and works frequently with Football Australia. And also Dr. Lee McGowan, who's a researcher, writer, and teacher working at the University of the Sunshine Coast, Uh, And his primary research interests are at the intersection of sport, culture, and community engagement. And together, they are the authors of Never Say Die, the 100-year overnight success of Australian women's football, out with University of New South Wales Press in 2019. Uh, Hello, uh, Fiona, and hello, Lee. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, yeah. Yeah, I love I love the book. Um, we were joking before I turned on the recording. That's a very timely book, uh, and and since it's a very timely book, I guess we should ask uh, how did you how did you come up with such a timely book? How did you develop this project? It's probably even worth going back to the beginning. So Lee and I met back in two thousand and eight at an event called the Homeless World Cup, which is an it's a football event, and they use football to tackle homelessness, and that's where we sort of first crossed paths. And then a couple of years later, um, I was about to go back and do my PhD and Lee had actually already finished his PhD and became my supervisor. So it was, we went through this sort of PhD journey together and he got me across the line, which for which I'm forever grateful. Um, and then once we got sort of past there, we started, looked up, um, could see a bit of, I think, space or a little bit of potential. And then we talked about, you know, this project because we were constantly talking about football anyway, because we both loved it. And yeah, we kind of figured, let's give it a crack. 
Would you have anything to add to that, Lee? Um, that's my recollection of it anyway. Oh, look, I, I think that's a, a very generous of you, Fiona. I think that um, your PhD was an amazing piece of work and um, when you, it was it was just a privilege to be working with you on it. The um, I remember really distinctly as being at a W League game and um, and the girls, my girls, who had been asking questions about when the game, when women had started playing and what was going on with it. And you you were the first person I asked to help me answer their questions because you you had had me at. I remember Fiona. We went to a game at ANZ Stadium in maybe twenty or maybe 2016, 2017, mm-hmm. and there was only 500 people at it. Yeah. And then there we were last Saturday in Brisbane, and there's 25,000 people at a friendly. It was unbelievable. Yeah, it was wild. It's wild. So I think, I mean, we were joking before we pressed record, but I think we, if we did anything right with this book, it was that we saw the potential um, and the uplift with women's sport, and we saw just how special it was, and how many people would fall in love with it if it was given the right resources and attention. And I think, yeah, in, in writing the book, we both recognised the potential, but we also sort of, I think, wrote on the co- coattails a little bit. Um, yeah, <laughs> as people were falling in love with the Matildas, we gave them something to to work with. Yeah, I did. I'm. I have to say, like when I was reading the book, um, you know, I, I'm a sports historian. I felt like I knew a fair amount about um, kind of, you know, the history of, of women's football, at least from a European point of view. Um, but I, I have to admit, like I learned a lot about what happened in Australia. And I also kind of felt like there was a through line of not just recovery or rediscovery, but also maybe a kind of, you know, corrective, like, hey, there's this great history that we can recover but also there's lessons for the now and what and what was happening in the past. And maybe we should go back to some of these things. So I'm wondering kind of when you were writing it, did you write it as a kind of as a kind of corrective, you know, a, a call for, you know, real women's organization of women's sports? Or is that was that just me reading it in a particular mood, I guess? Keith, I think you've obviously been talking to the publicist for the book. It sounds like you've absolutely nailed the intent behind the book, but I'm going to hand it to to Fiona to see what she thinks. I would agree with that, absolutely. And I think those were the constant conversations we had before writing it and while we were writing it. It was as much about here's some really fantastic things that have happened, but it was also about the same issues kept coming up and the same challenges and that, you know, it felt like women's football was overcoming so many of them and then having to overcome them over and over and over. Would that Was that what you would say, Lee? Or? Oh, look, absolutely. I think one of the things I think is worth uh, highlighting is that um, this, this was the books that are a result of two complementary sets of knowledge, Keith. The, um, I had been unpacking that historical stuff, the 1920s stuff, and then the re-emergence of the game, particularly in Brisbane in the 1960s, and then this kind of explosion that happened with the women's rights movements in the late 60s and early 70s as well. Whereas Fiona's really well connected and really um, knowledgeable about what's going on in the contemporary game, you know. So we so we came to the book bringing these two uh, really complementary sets of knowledge, and so discussing those. Uh, coming at it from those two ends of the conversation, if you like, was where we started to recognise these similarities. Although I would imagine, uh, Fiona, you, th- these are challenges that you'd see across women's sport. Absolutely. And I think part of, part of the challenge is even working in the space 
because there was no media coverage, because the games weren't broadcast, if people like me didn't see it because I was often the eyes and ears for the team, um, it was sort of in my head or if I didn't know who to go ask about something or to get tipped off by a family member or another player about here's this thing you need to focus on, it never got discussed. And I think there's so much of that with women's football that, yeah, it was it was constantly us trying to find out and figure it out and that that has happened until I think the last couple of years. So for you to have to go through historical archives has been one way of finding that information and for me it was that contemporary level of, okay, I've met, you know, Caitlin Ford's mum and she's told me a story about driving back and forth from Wollongong. So we're gonna we're gonna investigate that a bit further. But it was it was relationships or it was being tipped off. And I think there's just so much more that we still don't know that is in players' heads or administrators' heads that we just yeah, so many stories that haven't been uncovered yet. Yeah, that really struck I mean, that really struck me in reading the book. Um you know, I, I, I'm a academic in Australia too, so I've done the trove searches and so much of it you can find is amazing material. But then this book really couldn't have been written without these um, personal histories, these oral interviews, talking to the people in question. And so maybe you can talk a little bit about that, Fiona, because it sounds like that was that was your expertise. But how did you, you know, how did you make these connections and, you know, were people anxious to tell their stories or did you have to coax it out of them or, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, Lee could probably explain this, but there were so many people um, who were surprised we were interested in their stories because their stories had been so undervalued for so long, particularly I can't, their name escapes me, but I'm thinking the person who turned up to the FIFA camp and was sent home, Lee, that you wrote. Yeah. There's yeah, so many. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you you could speak to that probably better than me, but it was just so many people who were first surprised that we were interested in some of the detail because it seemed so mundane to them or it was a long forgotten thing and nobody had ever shown any kind of interest before. Uh, but it was also then once they understood, I think they, they trusted us. I think that's what it is. I'd, I'd worked with them for some time. So when I was asking them these questions, they thought, not really sure what you're going to do with this, but okay, yeah, sure, we'll answer your questions. And I think they were all pretty pleasantly surprised with what ended up being on the page. They're like, oh, you really were writing a book or, oh, okay. <laughs> we definitely got a bit of that. They're like, oh, it's like it's an actual book. <laughs> um, but I think it's that so much of women's football doesn't get that attention and there are so few books written about women's football. It was, it was a bit of a learning experience, I think, for all of us, yeah. Yeah, the um, there was a couple of because uh, we started the project uh, really for me started in the research around the game in Brisbane, and so as well as looking at the historical stuff, I started talking to people who were who were playing the game uh, in the early seventies and and met some people who played in the late sixties as well, and um, uh, so I, so I we put together an exhibition um, as part of that project uh, that toured around Brisbane libraries and we I did a few presentations in libraries and stuff and I was amazed at people turning up to see uh, what had happened and but there was as many people in the audience uh, who had come to say well, I played I played do you want to hear my story um, as well as people who were turning up who were like women's football how long have women been playing football for so it, it was amazing and like I'd invariably come home from these presentations with a bag full of stuff that someone had given me, newspaper clippings and photographs of medals and, and all sorts of stuff. But um, the Lynn Ketter story is particularly interesting in that um, 
Lynn had been involved uh, right like in the really early 70s of women's football and had wanted to become a coach and um, went to the coaching uh, training centre at Tullibudgera uh, where all the men's football training was happening and, and joined a course. Uh, paid the money for a five-day living course at Tullibudgera. She was uh, she did the um, C licence first and she was the only woman of the 48 people group um, on the the training session, the training course, and I think that was a three-day course. And then the B licence is much more involved. It's a five-day course. And so she turned up uh, as the only woman in this group of 70, 71 other women, uh, 72 in the group and 71 men. And she took part in the first day and everything was fine. And then towards the end of the second day, this fella, his name is Eric Worthington, and we've since discovered that he was heavily involved in uh, what was happening with what, um, English uh, women's football he was in, involved in stuff that was going on with that um, but he turned up and told her effectively that FIFA had made an edict that women were not allowed to train on the same football pitches as men and the um, uh, and that Lynn had to get off the course uh, had to get off the, the training course and so they wouldn't they wouldn't give her her money back um, they wouldn't even let her sit and watch what was going on so they just sent her home after two days of, of this course because Apparently, um, FIFA had told um, told the the football association organisation, um, whoever was looking after the course, because it's a national course. There was people there from all over the country, and so they chased her chased her away. But um, so either there's a few stories like that where where, but for the strength and courage of a handful of individual women, um, the, the the things would wouldn't have changed. It would have stayed the way it was. Um, until probably the mid nineties, you know, but these women were really smart and um, really uh, diligent in, in their approach, and uh, and were able to to build an organisation for themselves in the seventies. Um, Heather Reed, who, uh, who was really generous in her interviews uh, around the book, and um, and has been helping Fiona and I each on on our current projects as well, and um, and her dear friend Elaine Watson, who's the matriarch of of uh, Australian women's football. Um, these these are women who without without them that the the recognition and infrastructure for the game wouldn't be there. I think. I'll shut up now. Sorry, that was a lot. No, no, no. no. Right. I would I would second that. It's just the women who are have been involved in women's sport, but particularly women's football, are absolutely remarkable. And in some ways, I mean, no dis no disrespect to men's football, but I think um, the stories are richer, and the women who've been involved are just so extraordinary that. Yeah, I I come away sort of in awe of them, and they're my absolute heroes. So if we can do anything to contribute to making their stories known a little bit more widely, then you know it's job done for us. I think. Uh, I think you all have done it, and and yeah, it's definitely a real book. And and by the way, much better than a lot of the books that you read about men's football. Uh, it's not as is, although you all are clearly, um, you know that you respect and you you are uh, just so impressed with the work that these women have done it's not it doesn't read hagiographically it's not you know the pay on to these great women it, it for people who haven't read the book there are kind of two parts i would say I, I don't know if that was an intentional thing but there's the historical part and then there's the you know what are current issues that we're facing in the league and the historical part which we've been talking about a little bit i think could be kind of underlined by 
the notion of organizational challenges that just again and again, women try to organize to play and men's organizations say, no, you can't do that <laughs> um, and get in, get in their way. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about about that history for people who don't know anything about women's football or women's soccer in Australia. Um, where does it begin? How does it get its start? And what are some of the challenges it faces? You've got, I guess, two really good chapters, Roaring Twenties, and then not quite a half golden century that really delve into that. Um, so th- like, this is probably um, the, where I was able to contribute um, most, uh, Keith, the, uh, the research on women's football in the UK has become a incredibly rich now. There's lots of people working on it, but there hadn't been as much uh, work done here. Um, we knew there was a game played in Brisbane in 1921, uh, and it was deemed as a spectacular uh, event. Uh, Fiona and I uh, both attended the centenary uh, event to celebrate that uh, uh, last September. It was absolutely brilliant, and that was organised by Football Queensland. Um, but what, what was less well known was the fact that um, that was actually a culmination of a, a number of uh, football teams that had got off the ground in, in the local area. Uh, the women had formed their own association. Um, they tried to affiliate with the men's association at the time and the, and the men wouldn't have it, the chairman wouldn't have it, um, buying into the uh, propaganda that was being produced in the, in the United Kingdom about it not women about a game, the game not being fit, uh, women not being fit to play football, um, you know, and, and all sorts of spurious concerns about damage to reproductive systems and, and all sorts of stuff. But I, actually, it was really just about um, men looking to protect their corner uh, from women who had this uh, tremendous uh, appeal uh, in, their, in their football. Uh, it was something different. They were drawing huge crowds, earning lo- massive gates um, in 19... 19- 20 on December um, 26th, 53,000 people watched um, Dick Kerr ladies play against um, St. Helens uh, at Everton's ground, Goodison Park. Um, that, that was followed up a few weeks later um, with, with a huge crowd at uh, Manchester. 31,000, the reports is, at, at Manchester United's ground as well. And um, I think the problem was that the women were giving the money away to return servicemen's charities and... and um, Obviously, you can imagine these kind of stogie smoking factory owners who'd previously been creaming all the profits uh, from the, the men's football uh, who were missing out on this profits were kind of envious about how much money was being generated. Um, so that, that, was part of the, that was part of the issue, I think. Plus as well, you had men returning from, uh, returning from Europe um, uh, and, and coming back into the workplace, you know, and so uh, it was... It was deemed as being the popularity of women's football was deemed as a threat to the men's game. Um, and then the, the um, a couple of researchers, um, Alethea Melling, who was doing this research in the late 90s, and then Jean Williams, um, who uh, you and I talked about briefly before uh, we started the interview, just an absolute academic crush for me, um, started doing this brilliant work. And what, what they've kind of unpicked is that the straw, that, that the final straw really was when um, the the women who were playing football started raising money to support the striking minors, uh, families, the, the, the mothers and children of the striking minors. And so where the football was being used, as they saw, to support a kind of radical purpose, um, 
the that that was really it for the for the English Football Association and they decided that they would ban women from playing football on English Football Association grounds and when you ban people from playing on English Football Association grounds effectively means you can play football you just can't play anywhere that you're able to play football you know and so um, that had a huge impact on the game across Europe not only that and um, what we saw um, in uh, Europe by the beginning of the 1970s where things were starting to pick up again and you had um, early European and, and World Cup tournaments starting to emerge in Europe. F- FIFA um, FIFA damping things down again as well um, uh, by by speaking to the associations and, and suggesting that they um, uh, control women's football. Um, and when I say control, I'm, I'm, that effectively just means suppress the women's game, you know. So um, the same thing happened again in the 70s, but... By that time, the women just weren't having it. By that time, you know, they were already started. It was already popular. The crowds for the games in the World Cup in the 70s were just enormous. You know, so there was clearly there was clearly a commercial opportunities there. Um, so it wasn't just the women who wanted to play then. You actually had other people being interested as well. Now, that's that was happening in Europe and Australia. It was a, a different story. Um, the uh, women really struggled uh, because... I think uh, the Australian Soccer Federation, uh, as they were known at the time, were really unsure of what to do about uh, the women's game and the fact that there was this independent organisation and really, I think, um, were a bit naughty and tried to disrupt the game a bit as well. So um, so it was a, a different kind of challenge. Uh, well, the women's game was being sponsored by Martini and Rossi uh, and, and other people in Europe, um, the Australian game was... Scraping and and struggling and women were paying their own way and having lamington drives and and all sorts to start funding it. So, and and the whole way, um, as as Fiona has mentioned, as you've highlighted yourself, it, it was just it was just men getting in the way, effectively. You know, not not all men. There were there were allies. You know, uh, the 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 two guys um, from Preston and Glasgow who owned the the company, the manufacturing company, Dick Kerr, a. Uh, Foundries, they, they they were highly supportive of the women's team and, and actually sponsored the team until I think nineteen sixty five before before they folded. So, um, but effectively, it was just men in positions of power just trying to make sure they held on to that power. And sort of tangential to that, um, it was when we were writing the first draft of the book and even subsequent drafts. It was one of the real challenges in how to convey some of these issues without constantly sounding really negative because mm. what we, we really needed to frame it as here's some remarkable women who've done some remarkable things to overcome some really difficult odds. Uh, but it was a real, it was something we had to be really conscious of the whole time because it would have been really easy to just write a book complaining about how hard it was <laughs> to be a woman in football. I mean, you know, you could definitely have written that very easily. So, yeah, we, we, it was a really conscious effort on our part to go, okay, we see that there were these men standing in the way, that we, we see that they were not getting funding or any kind of support, and but how do we frame that as here's what they did to overcome that and how awesome are they? Yeah, I loved the the um, just the diligence and the hard work, but also the creativity and the <laughs> audacity of many of the mm-hmm. women. Uh, so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about then, you know, some of the p- people you mentioned earlier, Lane Watson, Heather Reed, Moya Dodd, and this organization that I think gets good uh, good press in your book, the Australian Women's Soccer Association, where's that come from? Um, well, 
it emerged uh, really because um, at the time, um, so in the early to mid 60s in Sydney, um, a woman called Pat O'Connor, um, who was an immigrant from England and her husband, they'd come over, they joined the um, St. George Budapest team in Sydney. And Pat was the driving force behind a league in in a, in, in Sydney City. Um, then um, at this, around the same time as that, you had a, a woman called Betty Hoare, who was um, instrumental in developing the game in, in Melbourne as well. And a, a whole bunch of... I mean, I'm just picking out a couple of names here to exemplify. There was obviously loads of women around them at the same time. Um, there was um, a... A guy called Oscar, and I can't remember his second name now, but it's in the book, um, in Western Australia, who was instrumental in, in managing a kind of a women's association there. And then in Queensland, um, that was where uh, Elaine um, Watson really emerged. She'd been in, involved in women's football, in men's football uh, in the early 60s. She was the first woman to referee a game of football in Australia. She refereed two men's teams. In a game, she coached uh, her sons as well uh, um, in teams as well. So she came in. She she effectively um, was, I think, one of the first um, to say, right, this is this is enough. We need to fix this and start organising at a, a national level, state level, and then national level. So she was really the driving force behind uh, the game developing in Queensland, and then I um, like I think she was instrumental in the the organisation. A meeting up to play in Sydney in that 1974 tournament, and by that time um, there there was a, all sorts of people involved, you know, and uh, like Heather Reed was there, and there was all sorts going on, and the um, a, that it was a national a national competition to play state teams because the women saw obviously really early on that the only way to a, to build a, on the strengths was collectively. And so having a national organisation led to a, having a, a national team. It led to playing games overseas, you know, and a, and, and that had already started to happen during the 70s anyway. And um, so, yeah, like that, those are the kind of key kind of, um, a, I, I guess, hubs um, for the game. And then and then coming together, the, the AWSA emerged out of that. And then uh, before you knew it, um, I think by the late seventies, you had um, there were already there's already scandals. There was teams playing across in uh, international teams uh, playing in the the invitational tournament in Asia. The, the women's game in Asia had really started to build momentum there as well, and then they started playing tests against New Zealand as well. And like and from that, then you've you've got some they'd started to amass like a nucleus of really strong players. You, you mentioned Moya, Sue Montito was another Connie. Uh, Connie Byrne was another. Uh, uh, Connie would later marry Jim Selby, who was the first coach of of the the team. At the, and then they were obviously the, the kind of proto Matildas, you know, the, the first national women's team. And so the um, uh, now you've got really good players hungry to play and gain experience. Then then they start looking at international tournaments and stuff as well. So it was um, the the AWSA was integral to building momentum for the game, not just in Australia, but to connect with. Other associations like New Zealand a Women's Association as well, and then a, that led to the the Oceania a group as well in, in the early eighties. So, um, and then and then really the the 
they were in charge in the, of the governance of women's football right up until the Crawford report came. Forced them all, forced everyone's hand, and made all the football associations all merge together. So, it, like, it was an incredible organisation, and like Heather Reid uh, as the CEO of it was like just a, a driving force, you know. And um, Elaine was uh, was there for a bit, and then away off doing other things. But there's like loads of brilliant people there who are still involved in women's football, like Kerry Harris, uh, who's the the chair of, of Women on Side, and so so many others who've been involved in women's football and refereeing and. All sorts of stuff that, um, eh, that 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 have all come out of that organisation. So it's just a, it was just an amazing kind of engine for women's football. I uh, I don't know if you want to jump in, Fiona, but I, I mean, uh, if if you since you mentioned the Crawford report, Lee, I mean that that in some ways that comes up in your uh, chapter making uh, their own way, and my reading on it was that it felt like you were writing about it as a, as a, what's the, what's the best way to put it? Uh, at best, maybe a mixed blessing. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Best, so, yeah. yeah. What, what, what was your, what, what's your uh, take on that? I mean, so that chapter making their own way, you really brought the game into the nineties. And um, so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what was going on in women's football and yeah. If you know, no bear. Do you know, no better. It was her dad that wrote that report, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, no relation, no relation. Um, yeah, I think that period in particular is such a tricky one when you're looking at women's football because, I mean, the men's football was taking all of the attention, but actually it was really, um, it was taking the attention and the resources from the women's game. So that's mm-hmm. about the time that, that the AWSA was essentially forced to, go under the auspices of Soccer Australia um, or whatever, you know, and then they later changed to Football Federation Australia. And, um, but they had their own issues and they were not really um, focused on women's football or interested in it or sending any resources that way. And hmm. so there was that real period around that time and around the Olympics where women's football um, just didn't ever get the injection of funding or attention that it could have. So I think when you look at women's football, particularly in um, the contemporary era, you can see so many, I guess, sliding doors moments where you think, oh, if that had just gone one different way, things would have been much further ahead much more quickly. And, I mean, I can point to so many. So, for example, 2011, we were at the Women's World Cup. So I'm conscious this is jumping quite way ahead from the Crawford report, but it's a, a good example of at the Women's World Cup. You'd come off the back of 2007 where SBS had shown every game. Um, we thought, you know, something, there was a documentary. We thought there would be some great stuff that would come from that, but it all kind of dissipated. And then you get to 2011 and they're not showing all the games at the World Cup, so that's a bit of a problem. They finally make it to the quarterfinals, at which point all the media get on board. So it is going to be, the game is going to be broadcast in Australia. And then the Matildas have an absolute, just a shocker of a game. It's just not up to their standard. But again, it was that that cusp moment. If they had gone one step further in that quarterfinal, uh, everyone really would have sat up, resources would have flowed into the game. But instead, they went home and it all kind of dissipated. And then they didn't make the Olympics after that, so it fell away again. And there's so many moments like that. So for me, the Crawford Report is a bit of a it's a juncture, or it's a kicking off of a decade or two where you just think, oh, if yeah, if someone had just paid a bit more attention, thrown a few more resources their way, given them a few more opportunities, if a couple of games 
um, had gone their way, if there'd been some better sponsorship or some media coverage, we would have been a little bit further ahead. Than, like it would have been more in the space where we are now because, for example, 2011, um, the US lost that final but they had such an outstanding tournament and they won. Everybody fell in love with them. And so they went back to America and they were like heroes even though they'd actually lost the final. And Australia could have been could have been like that if we'd gone one game more. Mm. That makes any sense. So yeah, profit report, complicated feelings, I think. Yeah. <laughs> there's, a couple, there's a couple of brilliant sliding doors moments now. You've mentioned that few and just before that as well, you know, like um the bid for the World Cup next year was was Australia's third bid for the World Cup. Mm. You know, like the the, the bid in 1995 really didn't stand a chance. That was for the 1999 World Cup, but they were up against um, the US bid, which was being bankrolled to like the tune of $30 million or something. You know, and so, so Australia knew there was no chance of them being able to compete with that. And we're talking about the AWSA working with um, people uh, at um, Football Australia at the time, the Australian Soccer Federation it was at the time. And then in 1999, they bid for the 2003 World Cup and they'd learned some really valuable lessons coming off the back of their first experience of doing that. They printed up this fantastic glossy brochure, like really done the numbers on it. They had a fantastic campaign. They went across to uh, the 1999 World Cup um, and like all sorts of people were involved, Maria Berry and, and all sorts of people were, were party to that and, and putting it together. And it, the their bid um, was so good and so strong that people were congratulating them on having won the bid before it had actually been announced. Uh, and then um, uh, the um, Chinese Football Association and FIFA um, struck some kind of deal uh, and, and FIFA, uh, like on the on the brink of uh, awarding the tournament to Australia, uh, then uh, gave the tournament to, new, to, to uh, China. And then... Um, uh, who then couldn't host it anyway? It was uh, the the SARS breakout meant that it was hosted in in the US uh, in two thousand and three again, and um, that 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 if they would got that tournament then that that would have had such a massive impact for the AWSA uh, just at this just like like two thousand and three. You can imagine those two troubled decades that Fiona's just mentioned. It would have made such a difference to that. So you like if you if you think about it. Like, $30 million the Americans were bankrolling their bid for in 1999. You know, um, the, the Australian government helped out with $5 million for the 2023 bid. That, that's, that'll give you some idea of the kind of um, pressures around these these processes. So that was definitely a, a moment there where I think that, that like things could have changed even before the Crawford Report came out. Because the, the Crawford Report was really about addressing the problems in men's football. You know, women's mm-hmm. football wasn't suffering from, from the same problems. And actually, um, there's a book um, called um, Shootout by Ross Sully, um, which is an absolutely brilliant kind of um, scathing analysis of of um, the stuff that was going on around that period as well, if you wanted to look at that, into that further. It's a really brilliant book. So... Yeah, there's a. I think if you want to, you could probably mention more sliding doors moments as well, eh? Yeah, maybe even the calendar. I mean, I'm hesitant to mention that because I feel like the calendar gets a bit too much airtime. It's the um, only thing so many... people might know, you know, if they're not. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. And it's so tricky because I think there's much richer things that happened in women's football, but I also understand why it does get, you know, um, but it's that same moment of there's no funding in women's football and 
although many of the players do feel quite empowered to have participated in the nude calendar, there's all these complicated um, feelings that you have around it because if they'd actually been paid properly, if they had proper opportunities, they probably wouldn't have had to even consider participating in a nude calendar. So, yeah, it's another one of those sliding door moments. And it also, um, there were 12 players involved, but it did affect the entire team's reputation for decades. I think we've only recently kind of shaken it off a little bit and I think it is still likely to pop up at various times but yeah yeah um, I think as well it's always worth keeping in mind the context around that as well at the time um, nude calendars in western and global northern cultures particularly in uh, in England and uh, in the US you know there was nude policemen and nude firemen and 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 all sorts of nude calendars it was it was all the rage at the time so they were it wasn't really a as much of a publicity grabbing stunt as as it's made out to be out of context you know um a, there's a, actually they've made a film about it there's a really brilliant story about a country women's association in northern england doing one you know these women hiding behind their knitting and stuff that was a a, a massive story a, a couple of years just just maybe 18 months before so they were really a big deal at the time um and and as well i'd say that um well as, as fiona said at the time it was about raising some some pay for the players, for uh, some some a uh, compensation for their efforts because they weren't being paid. They were pretty much volunteering, and e- even then, at the end of the day, they didn't even make that much money uh, from it. You know, the amount of money that they they each managed to gain from it was a pittance compared to um, a, a pittance compared to. Although there was the added benefit of some of them uh, being able to. Um, uh, leverage the experience and get some money doing a Japanese toothpaste advert after it, you know, and, and making a bit of extending the, the the funding from it afterwards, you know, but um, I think it's hopefully we've moved past it now. Uh, people are looking at the football now. I mean, the crowds at the, the Euros was amazing. People are watching the football. People see the crowds are really different in that, and so hopefully we can move beyond it. And they're finally getting the broadcast and the media coverage that they should have had all along. And that makes all the difference because when you can see the games, you can actually support the team and you can do that consistently. And that's what's really been absent, I think, even until the last five years or so. So, yeah. Even just buying supporters' jerseys and stuff like that, right? Buying replica jerseys that are made for women and stuff like that. Oh, huge. I used to get, because I was doing their social media, I used to get all these direct messages and. yeah, from fans sort of imploring me to tell them where they could possibly buy a Matilda's jersey for themselves or for their children. Uh, and it was such a difficult thing because I would constantly take those messages back to Football Federation Australia and say, hey, look, there's a market here. There's People are really after these, but it was really difficult to justify. And obviously I understand because there was a great expense with jerseys, but it's really heartening to see now that that's the balance has finally tipped on that and you can get those jerseys and hey, you know what, there is actually a market for it. I'd say there's maybe a bigger market, although I, I have to admit a few out of, uh, when did the U.S. come into Sydney and play at Combank against Matilda's? We went with my daughter and um, she's, she was, our, both of her parents are American, but she was born in Australia and has Australian citizenship. And we asked her, do you want Team USA? You know, smiling, smiling. Or do you want do you want Matilda's? And she said, "No, no, Daddy, I'm Australian. I want Matilda's." So we went everywhere. We went to every shop in Bondi Junction trying to find a Matilda's jersey and couldn't find one. But yeah, um, it's a bit hit and miss still, for sure. Yeah, but uh, yeah, she. You, so you have another fan. Uh, she only likes Matilda's, Swans, 
and the Sydney Sixers because they wear pink. But good reason is any. Yeah, really, yeah. as far as I'm concerned, it's as good as reason as any. I, I would hearing you both talking about sliding door moments. So it made me think too, and we don't have to talk about this. I just thought I'd mention it. Uh, also, the men's bid um, and how much money the government spent on that mm-hmm. in, a, in an utterly um, futile effort to get the men's game. And if they contributed that money instead to the women's side, they almost certainly would have. <laughs> right. well, yeah. Do yeah. you know? Fun fact is, I was actually in the. I was a crowd extra in that ad for that failed bid. So oh, no. I, <laughs> yeah, and I also even went and bought an inflatable kangaroo to be part of that ad and oh. claimed it on my tax year, that year because I did get paid. <laughs> on <the> which is, <laughs> um, I know. I think my accountant every year when I turn up and I go, he's like, "Are you seriously trying to claim an inflatable kangaroo?" And I was like, "Yes, I am." Um, <laughs> but yeah, it is a bit of a sore point because it, I was so excited to be in that ad and it was such a crushing moment and yeah it is like you say there's so much money that so much money that's thrown at the men's game with very little thought I mean and there's no they are not required to justify every cent in the same way that women's sport is whereas you are given so little in women's sport and yet you are you know eking out every cent and you're having to justify that there's you know there's a market or that you really do deserve this money and I just I find that quite Things that are given to the men by default without any second thought, uh, you have to justify and justify and justify in women's sport. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to, I, if you wanted to say something, Lee, I don't mean to interrupt, but you, your last chapters of your book deal with some of the kind of contemporary issues that facing women's uh, football, women's soccer here in Australia. So you have your, your kicking domestic goals, show them the money, overcoming injuries, coaches, the f- future is female. Uh, women's world cup international tournaments and where do you go from here but one of your chapters is about money and i, I i'm on the record <laughs> i've written a few pieces about basically saying pay the women yeah um, well it was interesting I, we yeah. the week we released the book and i had written obviously that pay parody or a lot of those li- later chapters because it's the more contemporary stuff um the the week we released the book the matildas announced their groundbreaking pay parity deal so I had this moment, and Lee had it as well, of this absolute euphoria of releasing this book and absolute euphoria of you know, hearing the Matildas have achieved pay parity and then that sheer terror where you think, oh, my God, is our book immediately out of date? Uh, <laughs> no, so, it's impact. It's impact. It was, it was amazing, though, because I went back and reread it and it remarkably did actually hold up. Like, obviously, it didn't say that they'd achieved pay parity, but you know, I don't know, thanking my past self, how I'd written the chapter was actually still still kind of held up and it still made a lot of sense. So I was very relieved and very pleased. And obviously then media really wanted to talk to us about the book because suddenly, you know, everyone's talking about the Matilda's pay parody. So it was a it was impeccable timing, we have to say. Well, maybe you can tell us a little bit about about the issue for people who aren't because not all of our listeners are Australian, so they wouldn't won't be familiar with with um, what the pay disparity was like in Australian football and maybe why it was so um, so shocking that the Matildas <laughs> were were uh, paid so much less than the men. <laughs> well, I think there's a, um, a really brilliant example of um, the differences when you look at um, the, since 2016, the... Um, U.S. women's national team have been earning more revenue for U.S. Um, soccer than the men's team. 
And in 2016, when that happened, the men's team, men's players were still being paid more than five times the salary of what the women's players were being paid. And at that point, they'd already won like two, three, two World Cups, maybe three World Cups. You know, and so you're looking at paying your your World Cup winners um, a fifth of what the men's team are being paid. So, like, it, it, even if you don't go close to home, then there's the perfect example. And it's um, and the the fact that it's not just about it wasn't just about parity. It's become a political statement for for football associations to pay the women the same as the men. You know, it, like speaks to how uh, dramatic a move it is for outside of the kind of orthodoxy of a way the way that football's governed. You know, mm-hmm. I think there's that, even before you look at the scale of the difference. And I could probably just add to that is I was working directly with the Matildas doing their social media at the time and I saw firsthand just how hard the players were working and how many things they were juggling. They were all working casual jobs. Uh, they were all studying. They were all then so generous every time I asked them to do something there was never any complaint I mean they must have been exhausted fitting in everything that they were doing plus doing all their training as an elite athlete and the one I put the example in the book but Katrina Gori was named the best player in Asia and she literally <laughs> flew back so they they flew her back a business class seat um, but she went straight from there to working in a cafe because you can be the best player in Asia, but when you're a woman, you're not paid enough, so you have to still go work a casual job in a cafe. And she was actually having to field media inquiries by the you know the rubbish bins out the back of the cafe uh, on her break because that's how much she was having to juggle just to, yeah. And for me, that was a really stark reminder of you can be the best player and you still can't pay your bills. Well, thankfully, things are changing, though. You know, like um, the, the amount of football that's uh, been... Um, generated in Europe uh, at the moment there. You've, you've, we've just had the, the biggest transfer fee for, for a, a women player. Um, the, the Lassie for, um, Man City's moved to, to um, I think, Barcelona for £350,000, you know. So um, that's that's a sign of... It's, it'll be a race now for clubs to get to the first million pounds signing. Um, and that'll be... Like, that happened in 1981 in, in uh, English football. So that'll give you an idea of how long it's taken for things to change, you know, um, uh, uh, well, for a long, like how long it's taken for women to receive similar recognition to the men and all, all the rubbish about uh, people not wanting to watch it and there not being an audience and that. I think like you only just have to look at the Euros tournament there in, in June and July to see that that's, that's a nonsense, you know, they, they, they couldn't, um, they couldn't, the tickets were unbel- like difficult to get, you know, they were selling out all the stadiums um, massive crowds, 18 million people watching it from home in England. Same in Germany, they're watching the final. You know, like like people are happy to watch it. They they love the quality of the football. Um, yeah, so it's it's really just like people who don't know any better uh, keep taking uh, cheap shots uh, at the women's game um, out of ignorance more than anything else, rather than giving it a chance. You know, and like I still meet football supporters now, like been football supporters all their lives who are like, oh, I'm not watching the women's football, you know. And I'd be like, ah, sort yourself out, you know. Like, just watch it. Just have a look and see. The football's amazing, you know. So um, I think I think things are, are, will change, you know, like um, really dramatically, but we're already on the way. And I think even better than that, when you look at clubs like Lewis FC, um, just outside Brighton in England there, where the women, it's a, 
club level, the women are being paid the same as the men. Um, it's a community club. Uh, all families are going. Serving, they're serving fresh, healthy food at the food stand instead of pies and bovros and, and the chips, you know, and uh, it's become a, the whole of community thing rather than it just being about uh, guys going to watch a game of football on a Saturday afternoon, you know. It's it's uh, like that. that's the kind of thing that you go to the women's football for. It's great crack, it's safe, it's friendly, it's uh, it's a buzz, you know, and so like the more people see that, then the more people will want to go. And if I could just add to that, I mean, I it's I don't I will never say that missing out on the two thousand and three Women's World Cup bid was a good thing, but gee, I think we've got a you know hosting it in twenty twenty three is probably the timing could not be better. I think mm. women's football is on such um, the the ascendancy is just enormous, and I think we could not have timed it better. So I guess speaking of you know good timing, I don't think we could have timed it better to be hosting a World Cup. I mean everybody is really starting to get on board with women's football. And if you're looking at the Euros, you think, God, it can only, like, how much bigger can it get? It's just going to be massive. No, I'm, maybe, so one of your chapters, and by the way, for people who are listening, um, all these chapters on the contemporary issues, they're really rich. I really liked one of my favorite, for example, was about the coaching. Um, but I, since you all are uh, seem keen to chat about um, women's World Cup and the trajectory uh, and the timing of it. I wonder if you could talk about the trajectory of the Matildas. I mean, um, you know, wh- where do we, obviously the first women's team, national team in Australia wasn't the Matildas. Where do we get the Matildas from? What's what's their trajectory been in the last, you know, 20 years? And um, maybe your own thoughts on if we'll get to see them uh, hoisting any trophies soon. <laughs> <laughs> You may hope that, but as you might guess, I have a different view. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Lee, do you want to start? Or? Well, look, the, the, the Matildas, the name didn't arrive until 1995, I think. Yeah. It was a competition. Yeah. And the um, uh, it could have been, like, thankfully, it landed on the Matildas. It could have been all sorts of mad stuff. Um, but the, the first, the, the Australian national, women's national team, the first one, uh, emerged out of, um, those uh, national competitions I talked about in the late 70s, where each of the state uh, football associations were uh, congregating in a different state each time to play uh, a national level tournament. Uh, and then the best, the, the, the squad for the national team was selected from that. And then they started playing tests. Um, New Zealand came here and, and they went across New Zealand and, and played a few test matches. And then started getting involved in 1983. They went and played the Oceania Cup in uh, Numea, New Caledonia, and they played against Fiji and um, New Caledonia. Uh, and um, oh, I think, I can't remember if PNG were there or not, but New Zealand uh, won that tournament in 1983. And so that really, that's for this region, that, that's the first time international football those are the first times that international football had started to was, was being played, you know. And you've got players like we said Moyer, but but also other players, um, the the lassies from from Brisbane, um, Joe, Joe, and our Milman? sister Kerry Milman, yeah, 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 Joe Milman and our sister Kerry, and I think Joe played like six hundred club games for our club in Easts in Brisbane. Yeah, like it's just, like incredible, right? And was and, never benched. I don't think. And then, I, yeah. um, and then still, still heavily involved in the game now. And um, the um, 
I think she played like she played an amazing amount of caps and considering like they they might have only been seen to have playing like maybe 12, 10 or twelve full internationals between uh, nineteen seventy nine and, and nineteen eighty seven. You know, so for them to have gained as many caps as they had over the course of a decade, that's that's an international career for a footballer. You know, it's um it's, these are these are just remarkable remarkable women really that and that was before they became the Matildas really and but since since the nineties where people have started paying attention and Fiona's already mentioned two thousand and seven uh, which was a real kind of uh, watershed moment I think and then each of the World Cups has got successively uh, successfully bigger in terms of people's awareness uh, attention uh, that the 2019 tournament was was incredible. You know, every game was televised on SBS, picking up massive audiences. And you know, like the I think there was like an estimated 5,000 uh, Australian fans travelled to uh, France and and travelled with the team and like that. Like that's an ama- an amazing measure of popularity in the game. So and now you've got the likes of uh, Ellie Carpenter picked regularly. <laughs> I say regularly. Uh, picking up uh, European Champions League medals and Sam Kerr on on million dollar, two million dollar contracts and all that, you know, it's it's just been a phenomenal uh, uh, rise to to popularity. But it's all based on like hard work, quality, and luckily there's enough people still around who played in those early days who are able to kind of keep people grounded and remind them of uh, and Sam herself, you know, like. Um, it was things were pretty rough when she started her international career as well. So there's this kind of brilliant sense of uh, uh, being grounded, and there's uh, like you know I don't think anybody's allowed to be a diva too much anyway, you know, and uh, in the way that we see in men's football, you know. So so there is that. And I would probably just add to that is the product has always been good. It's just that there hasn't been the supporting resources mm-hmm. around it, whether that's the investment so the players can actually focus on their football or it's the sponsorship or it's the media coverage and that's probably the difference we've seen in the recent decades and what's really exciting is we're starting to see all those extra pieces that are always sitting around men's football but we're now starting to see them sit around women's football and I don't feel like they're going away whereas in the past just because you got it once it didn't mean that it was going to stay there Uh, and I would probably just add I I, you know the Matildas are not going to win the World Cup and if we can reset our expectations a little bit they're a really good team like they really are and they're a top 10 team but they're not a top two team yet like we've got a long way to go in our football development in Australia Uh, so I really really just want to reset expectations that the the win is actually us hosting the World Cup what Australia and New Zealand will gain from hosting it um, is is already enormous and so you know we've already won with that However, the Matildas go from here is going to be, you know, that's a bonus, really. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I personally would probably tip a European side to win this yeah. this time around, but um, you never know. I mean, the ball's round. The game lasts ninety minutes. What else do we know? <laughs> Look, I wouldn't um, ever discount the US either. They've got that real. Um, that mentality of like we are gonna we are gonna take it right up to our position. So yeah, European had, or the US. The US has a lot of experience. I think there needs to be a bit of a change of the guard, and I wonder what the team will look like that they bring. But um, there's a lot of a lot of great players um, uh, here in Australia, over in Europe, and in the US that are a lot of fun to watch. I, I want to. I want to mention one thing too about about um, your your all's 
book. Uh, we haven't talked that much about it, but for listeners, uh, this is not just a book about the Matildas or like the top, um, you know, 25 or 30 women's players at any time. Uh, this engages a lot with the, the bottom and the top. So it's uh, many of the chapters deal with some of the more organizational issues as well. So I, I know we're talking about kind of the highlight stuff, um, but that's not that's everything that's in the book. Um, so I guess I just want to finish by asking you kind of, um, I guess, two two more questions quickly. Um, the first would be, and I hopefully both of you answer this in, from our earlier conversation. It sounds like you'll have you'll have interesting things to say. But the first question would be, um, you know, what's the future then for Australian women's football? Is it all up or um, is there are there clouds on the horizon? Hopefully not. And the second question would be um, after, you know, we're done talking about this. What other things can we look forward to reading from you next? So I know you both were joking about next books, next projects uh, before, and I'd love to hear about them. Sure, I'll let you start, Lee, if you'd like. Um, I thanks. Um, look, I think um, I I was a I'm heartened to hear Fiona uh, ring the ring that message about um, tem- temper on our expectations about World Cups, and I think you're right that um, the way the game is in Europe at the moment. Like the quality of the football, Germany played in that final without their best player. You know, like it's they, like both those teams that got to the finals of the Euros are going to be really hard eh, for the Americans or the Canadians to beat. Um, so it's it's like if you wanted that kind of bellwether on where the football's at, um, the quality of the football that we'll see the World Cup next year will be the best best women's football we've ever seen. I think. Um, so that's something that's really worth looking forward to. I think that. Um, whilst the the Matildas squad uh, may not be at the same level as those teams I've just mentioned, uh, what we're seeing in, in players like Karakuni uh, Ross and Karakuni uh, Cross, sorry, and and Courtney Vine and 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 Nalassi Nevin, and you know, like there's some fantastic young players, Mary Fowler coming through, you know, um, so so the people like. Um, Ray Dower and uh, and the and the young Matilda's coach as well, um, Lee, Leah Blaney. Is it is it Leah Blaney? Yes. You know if I got that right. Yep, Tanya um, Oxby as well. Yep. Yeah, you know, like the, these these are coaches who ensure that we are not just looking at like a golden generation of players. You know, like there's re- a real kind of pipeline of quality coming through. So that's fantastic. I think that's that's really happening um, in terms of of how the game goes. And then did you want me to hand to you now, Fiona, before I start banging on about the books that I'm working oh, on? Oh, no, go for it. You're all right. Um, so I'm, we, I'm working on um, three books at the moment, Keith. Um, a one we're just about to put finish putting together is an anthology of a, called Intersections of a Creative Writing, Sport and Society, where we've put together an anthology about creative writing and sport and, and all different facets of how creative writing and sport and sport are used and uh, are come together. Um, then um, uh, I'm about halfway through finishing writing up a book called uh, Women's Soccer in Oceania. Um, that's why I was across in uh, Fiji for the OFC Women's Nations Cup. A really brilliant tournament to be at because with uh, New Zealand, who would usually be the team that wins that tournament, uh, hosting the, the, the Women's World Cup, um, they've automatically qualified. So for the first time in that tournament's history, um, it was looking like 
it, like it was um, definitely going to be a different team from Australia or New Zealand who've dominated that tournament in the past. And so that was really exciting to be there for that. And Fiji got to the final, so as you can imagine, it, it was really brilliant. Um, the um, so we're working on that, and then no sooner will that one be finished in November, we'll finish up writing one called um, a Beach Soccer History. So we've been. Uh, looking at and investigating the development and history of of the game of beach soccer, um, so and I think all three of those all come out next year with um, Rutledge and in Springer uh, as the anthologies with Springer. So um, that that'll be really exciting to to have them done. And I'm uh, to be honest with you, I'm in my happy place. That's where I love working on that stuff. So uh, it's been really uh, it's been really busy as you can imagine, but also really exciting too. So if I go back to the first question when you were saying um, what does you know what does the future look like and is it going to be sort of all upwards from here, I think we're going to hit some, there are going to be some clouds and that's actually probably not a bad thing because we've had a few years where it's been um, very exciting for women's football but I think we need to really shore up some of those foundations um, and maybe that is one of those is resetting the expectations around the Matildas are a really good team but they need they need more resourcing and more development pathways for players coming through. Uh, we've had the golden generation and where we need something a little bit more solid than just talent. Uh, we've had, we need some more resourcing. So you really are seeing players come through from those early years. Cause that's what, what's happening in Europe now. Uh, I think maybe going back to when you, you mentioned coaching before Keith, and that's a space where there really is some room for improvement. We, as you know, we haven't got uh, a woman coaching the national women's team, whereas Germany, for example, has a a policy of uh, developing women coaches and even the players they go and do, I think, if I understand this correctly, they also do their licences. So they're bringing through players and giving them a career path past their playing years. So I think lots of opportunities in that space for Australia to do a little bit better and so that maybe the next World Cup we can actually have a woman coaching and maybe an Australian woman. I mean, there's women like Ray Dower who are fantastic or Leah Blaney, Tanya Oxtoby, as, as Lee mentioned, and maybe it's time for them, or Mel Andriata, maybe it's time for them to have the mentorship and the support so that they can actually really succeed in that top job as well. Uh, in terms of next things is I've got a book coming out as well. Uh, it's about Women's World Cups, so it will be out uh, early next year or ahead of the World Cup. So a bit like Lee, I am feverishly trying to get that finished. Um, and, yeah, I've been just really looking forward to the World Cup. I think it's – I know it's going to be big. I've been to a couple of the other World Cups and I've seen them grow year on year and all the viewer numbers, all the crowd figures, um, the quality of the football, you know, surpasses the previous World Cup every time you see one. But I still can't quite imagine how good 2023 is going to be. I just think um, what we're going to see in terms of the quality of the football, but also suddenly that awakening of um, worldwide interest in women's football is, yeah, if the Euros were anything to go by, I think it's just going to be extraordinary. I know I'll be in the audience and probably my family as, as well. I'm very much looking forward to the Women's World Cup here in Australia. Oh, man, this has been such a great conversation, Lee and Fiona. I've really enjoyed it. Um, Thank you both so much for joining me. Thanks for having us. It's been fun. Thanks very much, Keith. It's great. Thanks for reading the book and, and, and giving us the opportunity to talk about it. 
no that that the the second best part of the this gig other than getting to talk to other fascinating researchers is getting to read the books and having a good <laughs> excuse to go oh no i just need to read this book uh, <laughs> thank you both yeah so you all have been listening to uh, new books and sports a channel on the new books network i've been speaking with dr fiona crawford who's a writer editor and researcher uh, whose work engages with social, environmental, and sports issues, and who writes for a range of publications, including 442, and who works frequently with Football Australia, and Dr. Lee McGowan, who's a researcher, writer, and teacher at the University of Sunshine Coast, whose primary research interests are the intersection of sports, culture, and community engagement. And we've been talking about their fantastic, yes, it's a real book, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Never say it's a very real book. You can you can pick it up very easily. Never say die. The hundred year overnight success of Australian women's football out from the University of New South Wales Press in 2019 in a very handsome paperback that I that I have here next to me. And uh, of course, I'm Keith Rathbone uh, coming to you live, as I say, from Macquarie University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.